So this is uh, Trevor Page, the founder of SurveyToSale.com, and you are listening to the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. And now, Paul, the App Guy. Uh, welcome to the App Guy Podcast. This is another episode. It's uh, episode 71. And uh, it's my job on this podcast to uh, bring you some of the best guests that we can find from around the world. And that has led us down this route of uh, finding interesting guests, no matter where they are. And today is no exception because we have uh, the CEO at International Entrepreneurship Center. Uh, his name is Bob Caspi, and uh, he is going to be talking about uh, his journey and entrepreneurship in general. So it's a warm welcome, Bob, to the uh, App Guy podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here with you. Perhaps you could start by just giving us an introduction to you, who you are and what it is you do. Alrighty. Uh, I'm an engineer originally. Uh, I went to New York University School of Engineering and Science. I studied under uh, Benjamin Franklin back in the 1700s. And uh, so I'm an older dude. And, uh, and I quickly discovered after graduating school that I don't work well for others, uh, and so I started my first company back in the early 1970s, and it's been a journey of company after company after company. I retired in 2003, uh, still a fairly young guy, and I, the companies that I had built I had focused on a field, a relatively esoteric field called signal processing or array processing or People may know it as digital signal processing, where one does high-speed mathematics for computers. And, and as uh, the use of this technology broadened, starting with military work, my first gig was actually with the National Security Agency. I'm apologizing in advance to everyone. <laughs> well, is that apologizing um, to the NSA, who are probably listening to this? Both. Yeah, right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and to the um, Chancellor of Germany as well. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, from government radar and sonar and communications work, uh, the first applications of the technology was in the medical industry in CAT scanners and MRI scanners and nuclear medicine systems and digital ultrasound systems. And that was my first company. And the second company, we focused on building digital imaging systems for the graphic arts industry. And and uh, had the fun of working directly with most of the newspapers uh, throughout the world and uh, changing newspaper imaging from film to digital imaging. And we built some of the world's first high-quality digital cameras, although it's laughable today. We built, are you ready for this, Paul? We built a a four-megapixel camera, uh, and it cost $45,000 in 1988 and uh, and and i think that's by the way an interesting observation about technology that you can get a better camera today in your cell phone um, by orders of magnitude essentially for free you know, it hasn't changed the cost of a cell phone dramatically and then my third company we played with consumer electronics and 
Uh, we sold things on television and infomercials, and I learned to say things like, but wait, there's more, and uh, learned a lot about marketing and selling. And then when I retired, I started mentoring uh, engineers at MIT and, uh, and also business students at Babson College, and that turned into a teaching gig at Babson. And uh, although I had never gone to business school, and nor had I ever gone to graduate school, I taught in their MBA program for seven years uh, on the topics of entrepreneurship and marketing. And then started to itch again, wanted to run my own business again. And most recently, a couple of years ago, joined together with, uh, with several uh, associates from customers and from school that I had obtained over the years and we started what's called the International Entrepreneurship Center where I serve as the CEO right now and that's you know the story up until this point. Well Bob it's a real pleasure to dive into this story because uh, we like to take inspiration from uh, you know successful entrepreneurs like yourself and you know you know you're right uh, technology is changing and uh, just you talking about this digital camera that cost $45,000 to build and it was up to four megabyte. It's uh, really, it's a good lesson for us that we just shouldn't take for granted the, you know, the great things that we have around us and uh, that technology does move us forward in leaps and bounds and it uh, it don't really see it on a day-to-day basis. It's only when you look back over time that you see just how much technology is changing. That observation is... A critical part of my teaching today. The speed at which innovation is occurring is uh, increasing exponentially and therefore the time between replacing innovations is shrinking dramatically and uh, and the point that I try to make as well is that the time that companies have to adapt to using new technologies is also shrinking. And I use the example of, uh, in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, and if and replacing technology, uh, you might consider wireless communication developed by Marconi, took 25 years, it was the end of the century, 1899, before Marconi invented uh, the wireless uh, communications. And then if you looked at a business, let's say in the early 1900s, let's say 1910, and you said, how long does this business have before it must integrate that technology or die? How long would a company have before it'd have to get a telephone to talk to customers and suppliers before the business model that they were currently operating under would become obsolete? And you might say, well, maybe 1940s, 1950s, before that were the case. That's 75 years from the invention of the telephone. And if we carry the same experiment forward and we say, okay, Apple invents an iPhone or there's a new Android phone that comes out in 2014, how long does uh, Nike, a shoe manufacturer that's not in the business of telephones, how long do they have to integrate some new technology, which might be a near field communications between a chip and the sneaker and the phone so that it uh, keeps track of your jogging, an exercise program, how long do they have? And the answer might be six months to a year. So over the course of 100 years, what we observe is that we've shrunk the reaction time of, of, corp- of the corporate world from 75 years to a year and continuing to shrink dramatically. And, 
And there are two implications of this that are critical for your listeners. The first is that for those who are working at large companies, the uh, ability of a company to remain competitive is becoming critically dependent upon their ability to rapidly integrate uh, technological advancements into their business models. And we see that every day. We see Netflix go from uh, change the business model of video delivery from uh, buying, renting a CD and a, a DVD in a store to getting it in the mail to delivered online. We see uh, companies like Zipcar here in the U.S. and their equivalent companies in Europe and in Latin America with bicycles that are renting bicycles on the streets uh, using RFID chips to identify or Bluetooth communications and cell phones or smartphones to identify the user and GPS to, uh, to track the bicycle and to arrange uh, pickup and, uh, and uh, drop-off points. And, and so we see evolving business models in companies like Hertz uh, which is a traditional uh, car rental business, or a company like Walmart that's a traditional brick-and-mortar retailer, are, are experiencing extraordinary pressure on their business models from technology. And the implication of this on the other side for your listeners is that if you're a developer, if you're an inventor, if you're an entrepreneur, there is extraordinary opportunity for you by going towards these companies and saying, I can help you survive or competing with those companies in the creation of new business models that uh, make obsolete the business models that existed in cases for sometimes hundreds of years. Uh, we were participants in my companies of putting Kodak and Polaroid out of business. We didn't do it intentionally, but our innovations in the form of digital imaging basically destroyed what had been a stable industry for, years, I don't know how long it was, but it could easily be 100 years, yeah. right? And, right? And so, yeah, so what I try to do is I, in fact, make this, what I find interesting analogy between the evolutionary processes as described by Darwin as to how uh, organisms adapt uh, through this process of heredity, of random change, and or diversity, and then uh, selection through pressure from the environment, as exactly and precisely what happens in uh, what has called uh, the new sphere. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term before, but uh, that ideas and inventions uh, are in a space that's much like the biosphere, and in fact evolve in a way that's in my view, identical to the way that organisms evolve over time. And yet the speed of evolution, um, which is governed principally by the speed of reproduction in the biosphere, the speed of evolution in the idea space, in the invention space, in the new sphere, is really limited by communication speed and group size. And with the Internet, what we see now is that the speed of communications now is driving innovation speeds at daunting astronomical rates. And it's redefining what it means to have a successful company. It's redefining what it means to launch a successful product, how long you have to exist in selling a product or exist in a business model before you will be replaced by the guy behind you who is ever younger and younger. 
And so your job will be taken over by a six years old and mine by a three year old fairly soon. <laughs> well, we just, uh, the episode before you, uh, we, we interviewed a guy who started uh, his career at the age of seven. So uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. And he was an old man. Yeah, his friends. Yeah, but, you know, we do have man. a mix on the show. And we've had uh, baby boomers as well. The episode with Norm Bauer, who wrote on the generations. And so, yeah. The, but is it a good time to be an entrepreneur? Oh, never been better. It's never been better. In the same way, if you would ask me, you know, I think uh, the number would be, you know, something like 50 million years ago, is this a good time to be a mammal? Or would you be better off being born a dinosaur? Uh, the right answer would have been, hey, mammals are really going to do well. Just wait and see. <laughs> uh, we are at a time now where uh, the survival of large companies, like the survival of dinosaurs, is truly threatened at a, to a level which we don't really understand. Uh, and you said it yourself when we started the interview. You said it's very hard to see motion around you because, you know, it seems like that smartphone's been in your pocket for as long as you can remember now. You can't remember not even having a uh, cell phone. Uh, and it's very hard to observe the changes around us, but they are dramatic. Uh, I think that the number that I recall reading is that of the top uh, Fortune 100 in 1900, only five or six of those companies continue to exist. And of the top 25, of the top Fortune 500 in like the 19, early 1950s, only 25 exist. So you, uh, you're witnessing the extinction of a species that we refer to as large company today. And that doesn't mean that all large companies will cease to exist in the same way that we still have whales and we still have elephants. A few exist, but uh, the dinosaurs don't dominate the planet anymore. And in the same way, large companies will not dominate the planet anymore. And the individual entrepreneur who maybe gets his software written in India and his product hardware uh, built in uh, China and distributes his product all over the world through Amazon.com, the individual entrepreneur now has enormous power and enormous flexibility in the same way that small mammals had enormous flexibility and, uh, and adapted and, and developed through evolutionary processes the tools like language uh, needed to survive and dominate the planet. So Bob, uh, you're really spending a lot of time and it's a, such an interesting concept that you're applying the rules of evolution and being an, you know, an almost uh, living organism to the development of ideas and technology. Tell us, you know, what gave you that kind of um, way to compare the, those two? Well, actually, it was a book by a Brit. All right, okay. It was a, <laughs> it was a book by Johnny Hughes, who, uh, with his brother, uh, toured uh, America. And uh, he wrote a book about the tour, which he called On the Origin of Teepees which was intended to be a play on the uh, name of uh, Darwin's book, On the Origin of Species. And what Hughes was investigating was just the concept, as I stated, that ideas, in, and in his case, a specific set of ideas, the design of a teepee, and for those of your listeners who are not American and don't know what a teepee is, a teepee is the conical tent that uh, the Indians would live in on the plains of North America. And 
what Hughes wanted to investigate and, and writes a charming book about his investigation and his trip. Uh, what he wanted to investigate was the question of whether one could see a species map similar to a species map of, of looking at the difference between a wolf and a domesticated uh, chihuahua today, trying to understand how these two animals are connected together. In the same way, Hughes was interested in trying to understand whether ideas followed the same type of uh, heredity paths based on this con the same concepts that Darwin observed, which, as I say, were heredity, uh, the passing of traits from idea to idea, diversity, uh, the mixing of ideas and creation through random events of new innovative steps on those ideas, and then environmental pressures, which force the selection of the better from the worse ideas. And, uh, and I think his book is a, a fun read, but it's also, it is a reflective of lots of philosophical thinking that's out there that talks about uh, this concept that was started by, named by this guy Chardin, which uh, he lived to about 1955. He was, uh, I believe, a priest in Europe and was a paleontologist. And he was the one who named this concept, uh, this new sphere, it's spelled N-O-O sphere, uh, concept in, where he described this question of whether one can think of all of the living organisms as being in the biosphere and living, let's say, in, the, in an 11-mile um, surface of the planet, 11-mile deep surface of the planet. And he said, what if we were to think of all the ideas that are described in language uh, could we think of them uh, and construct them in the same way, like the biosphere? Uh, how can we think of the process that defines language, defines ideas, and evolves ideas over time? And there, there's been a lot of research and writing about, for example, um, how inventions occur, and this concept of what's called the adjacent possible, where even though our common folklore leads us to believe that uh, the Wright brothers discovered uh, powered flight or invented powered flight in, let's say, 1902, I think it was, that in fact, if you truly looked at the world in a more holistic way, what you'd understand is that simultaneous to the Wright brothers' work, there was a powered flight by, uh, I think his name was uh, Dumont in, uh, in Brazil, uh, and there were uh, two independent efforts in Europe that were occurring at the same time. And all of those inventions of powered flight were occurring simultaneously because they all relied upon prior inventions like aluminum and, and the invention of an aluminum block engine that was light enough to power a, a lighter than air, a heavier than air airplane. And, and uh, Bernoulli's principles that would show how and why a wing would rise and, and define uh, a wing designs. So all of these prior technologies contributed to the creation of what we think of an invention and credit to an individual. But in fact, it's not an individual. It's really this constant expanding of this knowledge bubble uh, that continues to grow over time, building upon itself. And the observation that I think is so important to combine with Chardin's understanding and, and the uh, and uh, Hughes's understanding is that the speed of this process of evolution of thought is 
now taken a step function leap because of the internet. So for example, there's an interesting study that I, that I read which shows that the number of patents generated is not linear with the, the population of a city. That as the city grows larger, the number of patents that are generated is higher than the linear expectation. So the implication of this is that higher density of intercommunications between people increases the invention rate. So if you think about that simple concept and say, okay, so the patent rate in New York City is higher than the patent rate in Duluth because the population, higher than the linear expectation because the population is higher, now what we've done is created a world where with the internet we have essentially one city called Earth, planet mm -hmm. Earth. And, and that city now is interchanging ideas in the same way that all of the inventors in Duluth would interchange ideas. And we've seen this over and over again, and we've seen it not just in technology, but in the arts. Oh, great. So perhaps we can learn a little bit about uh, who it is you take on to teach, and maybe you know, how, how can uh, the people listening, uh, the audience, the entrepreneurs, uh, you know, sign up to, uh, to one of your events? So uh, what we do is uh, we have uh, both open enrollment classes here uh, at, we use colleges uh, that are local to us. There are 300 colleges within the 10-mile radius of where I'm sitting right now. So Boston is extraordinarily dense in uh, college campuses. And we, we work in concert with uh, many of those colleges, like Boston College. We're running many programs this summer both for high school students and college students and graduate students and entrepreneurs who have not gone to school or are going to school or have gone to school. Um, we run courses for all of them on this concept of, first, a philosophy of entrepreneurship. Why do some companies fail? Why do some companies succeed? How does one increase their probability of success? And, uh, and we have thousands and thousands of alum uh, from IEC courses, but also uh, thousands and thousands of alum from my, the courses I've taught at uh, at uh, Babson and at schools in Latin America like UDD in Chile and and uh, Mawa in Brazil and FGV. And so uh, we're trying very hard to reach as many entrepreneurs as we can to try to help them understand how to take control of their destiny and not leave it to uh, the odds as defined by a lottery system that is similar to hoping that one would uh, sell their company to, to Facebook or someone else. Yeah, you know, let's talk about that because, uh, you know, before we say goodbye, I do, I do want to, I guess, focus on retiring because many app developers, they do look at these success stories and, you know, their dream, their vision of their future is to, uh, you know, make a lot of money, uh, sell out to Zuckerberg maybe, and uh, then retire. And no one, you know, someone said to me, well, well, why don't you retire first? I didn't figure out if that's actually what you want to do. Right. Because we always have this delusion of what retirement is. You're retired and look at what you're doing. Right. It's, it's incredible. So, I'm, so I've, I've already, yeah, what would you say about retirement? Right. So let's be clear. There is no such thing. For me, there's no such thing as retirement. And so I will work until I drop. When I, I don't really look at a lot of people as my role models. I have to be honest. I, I, I guess I'm too... Uh, I don't know, arrogant or to, to, 
to believe that other people represent the things that I want to become. But, uh, but I look, uh, when I see the lives of people like, uh, I think also his name is Hughes. I may be wrong. The, the, uh, movie producer who basically made, continues to make movies until he dropped dead. He did the thing he loved until he died. To me, that's the lifestyle that I most want to emulate. And so uh, I live in a world of young people who are energetic and enthusiastic and smart. And to me, that energizes me and gives me the ability to live vicariously through their excitement at this point. So the, the principal difference is I haven't really changed the community that I deal in, but I change the responsibilities and work as defined uh, on a daily basis for me. So I'm less involved in the operations day to day. I don't have employees. I don't have a tissue box on my desk anymore. And, uh, but what I do have is uh, literally each week hundreds of interesting conversations with entrepreneurs who seek guidance and advice and, uh, and we try to help them. And that's how I spend my life now. And then, and I'm perfectly happy with it. I'm happy doing it continuously. And I do it all over the world. And that makes it even more interesting. It's, it's more interesting for me to meet the scientists, engineers, developers uh, in other countries and to see the differences and also to see the similarities. So forget about retirement. <laughs> well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, the, I guess the reason I was asking that is when you live life as an entrepreneur, it makes you, it, it changes you. And I, I've honestly not met any entrepreneurs that have decided to sell up and go and just uh, live on a beach happily ever after reading books. You know, it just seems to be like once it's in your blood, it's really hard to uh, yes. get out. I and, tend to uh, agree, yes, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But well, we've had a, we've had Bob, and we've had a lot of interesting uh, international guests on this show. So you know, if you do look through the list and see anybody who would be of interest to you, I would happily uh, connect you in any way. Uh, we've had some you know interesting entrepreneurs uh, that perhaps uh, you know you would you'd want to chat with. So uh, happy to kind of connect you in that way. Is there anything you want to uh, advise you know those listening? Um, to try and help them make this decision about you know whether to stay. They've he obviously heard what you said about you know big companies. Uh, maybe they're in a big company. Maybe they're listening to this podcast on the way to a big company. What could you tell those people? You know, suggest to those people. Well, you may not have a choice. Would be my first statement. You know, the 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 belief when I graduated from school was that you would uh, you'd get your education, you'd go to work for a company, and then you'd build towards your retirement, and you'd get your pension fund and and that was how people saw their relationship, which was perceived in a very paternalistic way with the uh, corporate world, with corporate America. And uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And you have more control over your own destiny working for yourself than sitting in a cubicle someplace and hoping that someone isn't mismanaging the organization in a way that um, leads to the demise of your job. But I think that more importantly, I would, I would say, let me add three things. First, uh, you know, like the lottery system, and I think you have a lottery in the UK as we have uh, here in uh, Massachusetts, uh, they tend to advertise the stories of the winners and not the losers. So they give a disproportionate view 
of your likelihood for success when you listen to the advertising concerning the outcome of buying a lottery ticket. And unfortunately, the entrepreneurial story is exactly the same way, whether it's the venture capitalists who uh, sing the, the praises of the entrepreneurs who find success and make them billions of dollars, or whether it's the news who's interested in reporting about the successful sale of a company for 19, what's up, for $19 billion to, <laughs> to Zuckerberg. Unfortunately, the likelihood that you will buy a winning lottery ticket or the likelihood that you will start a winning company that will sell to Facebook is extraordinarily low and isn't the best rational plan considering that you rely upon the money to eat and pay your rent and uh, and exist. And so the one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is to put aside for a moment the passion. Uh, and it's great to be passionate about wanting to build a business, but you have to put aside your passion towards a particular product and start to become more rational about is this product really something that customers want and customers are willing to pay for? And how do I prove that? The second point that I want to make is that most small companies fail. Most app developers fail because the cost of selling, the cost of getting to a customer, communicating the value, and closing the deal is higher than the available margin, the profit made from the transaction with the, that customer. And so even though the company seems to be succeeding, and even though the product is great, you show the product to somebody and they go, oh, wow, this is really terrific. And it, maybe it wasn't even your mother who told you it was really terrific, which is even better. And so you, you believe you have a good product. but And you look at your sales records and you actually have more and more people using the product. And you believe, my God, this must be the indicator of success. The reality is, is that you're bleeding to death and you don't really understand it. Because the customer acquisition costs and the selling costs are killing you. And, and many, many, maybe even most good products die an early death because the path to the customer in sales was never found that was inexpensive enough to make it into a real business and not just a charity. Well, it sounds like you've got just this wealth of wisdom. So how can people best reach out and connect with you, Bob? So I'm on LinkedIn, and my name is Bob Caspe, B-O-B-C-A-S-P-E. That's like Casper the Ghost without the R at the end, C-A-S-P-E. And you're welcome to try to link to me on LinkedIn, or you can come to our website for uh, the IEC at iecpartners.com. Or you can come to my own website and see some of the art that I've created. I've done uh, painting and wood carving and stone carving and uh, at uh, caspigroup.com. So all of them, uh, Caspi Group is obviously my last name with the word group attached to it. And I'd be happy. I love entrepreneurs. I love hearing about their businesses and I want to help them. So please contact me and enjoy it. Well, Bob, it's been a fascinating story and it really is a wonderful episode in that I've, I've never um, 
in in my time of uh, interviewing entrepreneurs and app developers, you know, really put uh, this uh, theory of evolution and uh, the uh, word of new sphere. I mean, that's something new I've learned today. So. Uh, wonderful talking with you on the App Guide podcast. I know that's you know it's going to be a relevant topic to all the indie app developers, entrepreneurs, business owners, people even thinking about getting into it. Uh, it's really uh, interesting stuff, and uh, it just leaves me to say goodbye for now. And uh, we hope to have you back in, on a future episode. It'll be my pleasure. Love talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy Podcast.